This is Loika Darkroom. This is where we share stories and celebrate the success of photographers in the Web3 space. I'm your host, Pam Voth. Let's go into the darkroom and see what develops. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Monday's version of the Sloika Darkroom. I'm your host, Pam Voth, and I'm here with Steve Bennett, who's our special guest today. Um, I'm really glad that we'll get a chance to, to talk with you, Steve, because you you have the distinction of being the number three collector on Sloika in terms of volume. You, you've picked up more more NFTs than the other, let's say, four or 500 collectors that we have. <laughs> and um, I want to talk with you about what got you started. But the other thing I want people to know is that you are also a fine art photographer, and you've, you've dropped several things with us on Sloika, including one of one work, as well as editions. And including today, you just launched a brand new edition. So we're going to talk about that as well. But I just want to, first of all, just say welcome. And uh, yeah, hope, hope, hope your day is going well. And that, uh, that we're really happy that you're here to spend some time with us today. Well, great. Uh, where would you like to start? Well, I would like to start by, you know, I, I feel like we've talked so, so often, but let's, let's, uh, let's give you the chance to really kind of introduce yourself. Like if, if you were, let's pretend this is an art gallery and you were describing who you are as an artist to all of our fellow um, attendees here <laughs> who would like to know about Steve Bennett, the, the artist. Well, great. So um, I like to say that I was born in a tray of developer many decades ago. Uh, my PFT will sort of reveal my age. My father was an avid photographer and a radiologist by trade. And uh, through many, many years, I've been involved in photography in various capacities. Uh, set it aside for a while for graduate school and uh, uh, eventually came back to it uh, in the digital age here. And today, my work falls into two camps, and you can see it on my website, stevebennett.com. Uh, I struggled for a while to organize it, rather come up, I struggled to come up with an organizational scheme that actually wasn't a scheme that it made sense, and it works like this. I divide my work to images of the world as seen and images of the world as reimagined. As seen, sounds like it is. It's traditional photography. And that includes uh, macro photography, street photography, landscape photography, um, urban findings and the like. And on the other side, the world as we imagine consists of abstracts that are made up of images of infrastructure, patterns that I see, the human element. And um, those are typically printed on uh, large scale metal and they constitute the core of my corporate marketing efforts, and we could talk about that later if you like. I know you mentioned you wanted to talk about that in our DMs back and forth. So um, I consider myself a lens-based artist, okay, rather than a fine art photographer, although I do what I hope is fine art. At the same time, everything else that I do is lens-based in that it all starts off with photographs that I've taken and... Um, that that's pretty much uh, where I've come from the developer tray to where I am today. All the way from the developer tray to the Twitter space <laughs> in one fell swoop. Um, you say that you are a lens-based artist, and I did peek at your website uh, to get to know you a little bit better. Not, not uh, you know, like a huge, I haven't read every historical article about you, but I, had, I did see that you have a motion 
uh, like a motion art partner that you do really huge installations with. Is that still part of what you do or is that like, is that still going on or is that part of past history? Well, it, uh, nothing is past and all kind of recycles itself. During the pandemic, uh, there was nobody going into these spaces. So we kind of backed off. When I say we, I'm referring to myself and a motion designer in Montreal, one of the great cities of the earth. Andrea, are you down there? If you are, you'll be clapping. Um, anyways, uh, uh, Luis Socorro is an incredible motion designer. We've become good friends and we've been working together for many years. And we've done installations at the Boston Convention Center on their 80-foot tall uh, LED wall and on their interior 160-foot wide uh, LCD screen, which is pretty amazing. I mean, I have to say, being down there and looking at this thing is a little, little awesome. Um, so... Uh, yes, there will be more, and he and I have done about oh, 60 projects so far, so that is part of my life. Uh, I provide the photography and then work with Luis to actually turn it into things that go beyond photography in terms of full motion graphics. Well, some of those exhibits, I saw the videos that you shared there were really cool. I, I can imagine they. it must be really thrilling to see your work so huge and, and, and shown on these like, gigantic screens. What's that experience like? Um, it's pretty shocking, actually, because uh, when you're used to seeing it on your 27-inch monitor and, uh, and all of a sudden you go out and you preview this thing, there's usually a preview, and it's like... Um, it's hard to describe. It's it's rather breathtaking, and you have to ask yourself, "Gosh, did I do that?" And uh, it's immersive in a way that um, you know photographs and uh, you know photograph reproductions aren't. It's not better, but it's just different. But I, I would say uh, breathtaking. Yeah, breathtaking. I would I, I would agree with that. I I remember I had a similar well not not in there's not in the same lane at all, but kind of similar experience of seeing my work larger than what I was used to seeing it. And that was back when I was a film photographer. I was I would always shoot slides because, well, I just like the slide film and it was a little cheaper than, you know, the negatives and then the prints and all that. And I just thought, you know, shooting shooting slides was pretty cool. And the uh, the photo, it's actually a photo you collected, uh, the Million Dollar Bluebird edition that I had out that was shot on slide film. And I had only ever seen it, you know, the size of a 35 millimeter piece of film with a loop on a light table. And that's as big as, you know, like real life, one to one, big as I've ever seen it until I was invited to blow it up and print it for an art show one time, like a pop-up art gallery. And I was like, holy cow, it was really, that was kind of breathtaking to me <laughs> to see, you know, something so large. And it's like, wow, okay. And of course, now, nowadays with all of our work being, you know, at least my work is, is mostly on digital. So it's, it's easier to see it on really big screens, but I, it must be just really cool to see it on screens 60 feet wide. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I think seeing your work uh, on the wall anytime is an experience, and it's very gratifying. Um, the first pieces that I created that wound up in a corporate space wound up at Google's um, main offices by the MIT campus here in Cambridge. Um, those were four feet by four feet, and those were the biggest things I'd ever done. And going into the lobby and seeing those was was quite, quite an experience, just uh, the scale you know, the, the room changes everything. I mean, basically, all of a sudden, there's a wall, but you're making the wall. And it's really something. 
That is really cool. And I remember hearing from you before that you, you know, way back before NFTs, you know, (laughs) all that, all that uh, Twitter time ago that you have, you know, you made a lot of your, a large part of your business was selling artworks to corporate corporations for their lobbies and like maybe hospitals and things like that. Can you tell us how, like, tell us about this Google offices job? How did, how did you find out about the opportunity to have your work placed in corporate spaces like that? Did you just make that happen yourself or what, like, how, what's, how'd you get from here to there? Well, um, like everything, it was part intent, part accident. And um, it was accident back then. Now it's intent. So um, I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which has a very strong cultural and arts division in the city government. They really promote the arts in many different ways. And as a Cambridge resident who signed up to be in various programs, I got an email saying, if you'd like your art to be considered in a commercial space, send four samples along with um, an art statement and a bio. And I said, "Eh, what the heck, why not? And three days later, I get an email saying, you've been, um, you know, chosen here. We need pieces that are at least four feet and we need them in a week. And I'm like, oh my God, I... You know, uh, I didn't really think it was going to happen. So to have four foot by four foot pieces on metal done in a week and shipped from California, which is where I usually print, or in Rhode Island, which is also fantastic but expensive. Um, So I wound up working with IO Labs, which happens to be in Rhode Island, and uh, they were incredibly helpful and um, they were able to get it done on time and I had to rent a truck to go down and get them. It was uh, not going to be a winner financially, uh, but I saw that this was a good thing that I could leverage. I think it cost me about 2,800 bucks to get the four of them done rush. Uh, So when I got back to Boston, I didn't even know where they were going to go. And they said, all right, these are going in Google. And I said, ah, this is good. So uh, they were there for about a year until they renovated and then I got the pieces back. And at that point, decided this is a good thing to do and um, joined some art rental programs with two of the associations I belong to. They were immediately placed. And over time, they've been rented successively again and again and again. Uh, I've also worked with art consultancies now that I had the cred to do it. Oh, you're in Google. You were in this software company. You were here in this financial company and place some art that way. And sometimes it's buying it outright, sometimes it's renting it, sometimes it's uh, doing what's called a single-use license, where you give them a license to print, they handle everything, and you still own the copyright and all that. So that's, that's, that's a good deal. The pandemic kind of turned that upside down, and uh, I've only recently started pursuing that again, and I'm um, building up my LinkedIn presence, um, picking up old contacts that they change all the time, and I'm already getting traction from people who want to see new works, and um, I'm sure some business will come out of it. So at this point, it's pure intention. So it started off as, yeah, I'll respond to that. What do I have to lose? To something that, wow, this, this has become an important part of my business. 
Wow. So that original $2,800 that, you know, you made it happen. <laughs> that was that was a big entry ticket into this whole world. But I, it sounds like you've made that back way over, like many, many times over. So far. Well, I would, yeah, I would say so. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, um, sometimes you have to spend money to make money. And it depends on your budget and your capabilities. And uh, I was fortunate that I was able to do it. But um uh, yeah, that that's definitely proven itself to be very, very good. And uh, oh, there was a six hundred dollar honorarium, so it's twenty eight hundred dollars minus six hundred. So it wasn't a total bust the first time. And part of it is just faith that you can leverage what you've got. And uh, if you're the kind of person who doesn't think that way or hates marketing, then these are probably not good things to do. But if you're a little bit enterprising and you say, gosh, I did this and there's a chance I could do that, then it's worth the investment. I'll, I'll say. It, so with your two different types of, of, of creativity, the as seen, the world as seen, and the world as imagined, those first pieces, which category did those fall into? I'm sorry, which? The nature's layer cake? Oh no the uh, the the work that showed on Google. Oh, like, I'm sorry. That's that's strictly think? the uh, world is reimagined. Let me let me post some of these things. Hang on. I wish that there was an easier way in Twitter where, rather than going to your bookmarks and having to scroll through them, you can actually organize when you want to show people things. Hang on a second here, and sure. I'll put some of them up. If you want to ask. More questions in the meantime, I can multitask and find okay. and talk. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah. that's the, the hard part is the turning on and off of the mic while you're doing all those things. Like, I've always, I'll duck it and be like, okay, I'll just turn off my mic, go quickly, like, find something to tweet it, and then someone will ask me a question. I'm like, oh, shoot, can't finish that. Got to get back and turn the mic back on. So, you okay. go look for those things. Oh, well, I'm getting them. There's and one. And... Um, so, the world as reimagined. That's that's your line. I... I how, do you do you recall the very first time that you were exposed to art that you kind of remember thinking about art as art rather than just I don't know I guess I don't even know what we call it now besides just art but do you remember a young you, you said that your dad was a photographer and you grew up in you know you were born in the tray of developer <laughs> so to speak what was was his work in photography very influential to you to pursue visual visual arts in, in other words um less his art than his encouragement we we would go to the art museum a lot when I was uh a, uh, a child on Sundays in particular, take a go to the lagoon near the Cleveland Art Museum where I grew up and uh, then go into the museum itself. And uh, those were great experiences. And we had a lot of photography books around too. So I became aware of um, Adams and Weston at a, at a very young age. Um, so by the way, I just posted two here. Uh, this first one here, uh, oscillation. Uh, that one was originally printed on canvas with metallic ink, and it's since been reprinted, sold a number of times on metal. Right now, the original is sitting in a regional bank, which um, I've lent them along with about 20 other pieces. And it's great because it's like my gallery and warehouse. And they have, it's a captive audience. People come in there and they see the art, uh, some of it big, some of it small. And uh, it's resulted in some sales, and it keeps it um, out of my basement so I don't have to warehouse it. The other one here, the second one here with the uh, bubbles, uh, those are actually 
raindrops on a spider's web. That's like a three-inch section of web. And that one was also in Google and has made the rounds. That's over at the bank as well. This has been reprinted numerous times in various sizes. And originally it was on metallic paper with uh, dye bond. And now I only print it on metal, so it's much more durable. It must be better to have them on metal if they're going to travel around from place to place. I know that's a real hassle to <laughs> worry about glass breaking or prints fading and things like that. Yeah, I mean, one of the problems with all this is wear and tear, and sometimes uh, you just have to ditch a piece, uh, hopefully not until it's been recycled a number of times. Metal chips at the edges, and if the installer isn't careful or if someone's carrying it and they you know, drop it like on a doorstep or put one of the corners down, it will chip, and there's really nothing you can do about that. It's, again, it's just, it's just part of the calculation that you have to make in terms of uh, if it's not an outright sale or long-term rental, what's the wear and tear factor going to be? Yeah, I guess I never considered that the edges would chip, but that, that does make sense. Um, so I wanted, I, I know that we had a chance to, to share a few DMs back and forth before today. And I was, I was letting people know, of course, if anyone has just joined us, we're here with Steve Bennett today. And Steve has the uh, auspicious designation of being the third highest collector on Sloika in terms of the volume of pieces that he's collected. And to date, well, I, I don't know if these numbers are up to date to the minute because I don't know what you did before lunch, Steve, but I think the latest number I had is 30 pieces. And that is are you're, you're you're like 10 pieces behind the, the next highest collector and then the next highest one is probably double that but i am just really amazed and want to hear about you, this collecting habit of yours uh, it sounds like you're having a lot of fun with it every time i've heard you in spaces where there are people sharing their work and it's it's something that appeals to you i love it how you always get in and and encourage encourage others to to buy <laughs> in in your own in your own personal way. So can you tell us how you got started as a collector? I, I hear it's an interesting story. Well, um, so I entered this space in December. Gosh, that's a month. Going to be a year coming up. That's really something. And um, uh, my entry was through a fellow named Andrew Meese, who may or may not show up. Uh, we have a mutual friend. Her name is Carolyn Edland, and she runs Artsy Shark, which is a pretty cool organization that helps artists become business people. Anyways, um, Andrew invited me to uh, Foundation, and that was the first entree there. Uh, it's the first time I really had something. And um, uh, I'll come back to Andrew in a minute here. The other person is Rachel Thompson, who is in the listener here. Rachel is a social media specialist who, her field is book marketing. She works closely with my company. For those who don't know me, my day job, as it were, is creative director of a uh, large web development firm that specializes in authors and publishers. And my uh, business partner is down there in the listeners, Ken Wiesner, who's our CTO and um, genius of all things bits and bytes. So um, uh, Rachel was great in coaching me. I, I Truth be told, I hated social media. <laughs> and uh, she'd been nagging me personally to, come on, you really got to do it. And when it became clear that uh, having any kind of success with NFTs, you had to be active on Twitter, 
Um, yeah, so I got a Twitter account and I had like 200 followers. And she said, that's not going to cut it there. Guy, you really got to go into spaces. And it was like, oh, gosh. So I went into kicking and screaming and um, started to enjoy it a lot, actually, uh, with Tiba and Mongoose and then Brovo. Um, those three and then branching out, you can't go wrong there. And it was amazing when I started hearing people talk about their work rather than trying to glean insights from 285 character monosyllabic grunts, um, everything changed. And it was more like being in an IRL situation at a, say, critique group or presentation group. And I got real interested. And as I learned more about people's motivation and what their art meant to, to them, I started looking at it more carefully. And I said, well, this is kind of interesting. Now we'll swing back to Andrew Meese. Uh, I wish he was here. I'd love to give him a shout out. He's a great wildlife photographer. Uh, he probably rude the day that he met me because I kind of carpet bombed him with questions for weeks and drove him nuts. I'm surprised he didn't join the witness protection program. So anyways, um, so at one point I said to Andrew, so what's supposed to happen now? Uh, he had encouraged me to engage with people and don't just leave, uh, you know, comments like, dude, it's dope or whatever, and actually say something as uh, I have a few things to say from a curatorial standpoint. And um, I said, now what? And he goes, you got to collect. And I said, what? And he goes, yeah, you cannot be part of this community unless you collect. I said, do you collect? He goes, yeah. I mean, I've spent a heck of a lot more than I've made. I said, well, that doesn't sound good. And he goes, well, if you want to be part of the community, that's what you got to do. And eventually it might turn out in your favor if that's what you want. So between Rachel's prodding to get into spaces and listening to people and Andrew's um, edict that if you don't collect, you know, you can't be part of the community, I started collecting. I started off with... It was either a piece by Tiba called Harmony or one of Sebastian's pieces, a zebra piece. If one of them was in the room here, I would have said it's them. If both were in, I would have said it's a toss-up. Since neither of them are in, I think it was Tiba's piece, Harmony. But shortly after that, um, Sebastian's, one of Sebastian's zebra pieces, actually two, because I sloppily was clicking around and bought at least two of the things. So um, anyways, uh, and that was interesting. And then I started um, collecting a little bit here and there. And then there was a turn of events over the summer. I mean, the spring, I'd maybe picked up, I don't know, 10 pieces or so. I think all told now, probably between Sloika and um, object, form, function, known origin. I don't know. I think I'm up to 150 pieces. I'm not sure. I stopped counting. Uh, largely because uh, we don't, not, don't want that too well known around here. I've been married 39 years, and I intend to keep it that way. Anyways, um, so... Over the summer and uh, mid-June, I had an acute health care crisis, which uh, has since been remedied through some unfun surgery, and I'm almost recovered. But back then, in the really awful days of June, July, and August, um, I was just lying on the couch and um, you know, wondering, where am I going with my life? And uh, I, I wasn't in mortal danger, but I was pretty uncomfortable. And I spent time initially watching, uh, kind of binge-watching Green Arrow on Netflix and watching really bad movies like Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which, by the way, um, 
it's not a bad movie. Um, even when you're not on meds, it's actually okay. And then I started spending, when I got sick of that, I just started spending more time in spaces and started collecting more and digging into the, the artwork and connecting with artists through the spaces, asking questions, DMing them. And in a way, it kind of became my salvation over the summer that uh, it was something that was important to me. And I felt that uh, I was helping people and it was something that I could look forward to. You know, I think one of the keys to getting through anything that is unpleasant is having something to look forward to. And this really helped me a lot. So if collecting is something that you're looking forward to, you can be sure of one thing at Web3. There's always stuff to look forward to. There's always stuff to collect. Um, so that is really what catapulted me into whatever level I'm at now in terms of collecting. And even though I'm feeling pretty darn good now, I intend to keep up this level. Um, I now have an explicit strategy. Rather than buying a piece at one ETH or two ETH and then backing off for a few months, uh, what I do is I set aside an ETH and I'm really interested in pieces that are at uh, 0.02 to 0.03. And instead of supporting one artist, okay, I can support 20 artists or sometimes 30 artists, throw in some Tez there and it could be even more than that. So that's been my strategy. Um, and that might change it over time, who knows. But right now, I think that getting more people um, collected is more important than buying a big piece because it's not only satisfying when someone collects, it's validation. You know, uh, I've said this before, and if I bore anyone who's heard me before, too bad, I'm going to say it again. Uh, I think that as artists, there's a triangle that we live in. And at one corner, it's soul satisfaction. You create a piece because you have to. You take a picture because you have to. You paint something because you have to. And you're not even asking why. You're just doing it. I think in another corner, there's um, soul slash ego validation. You get into a show. Someone other than your mother or your um, you know, your best friend says, hey, this is really good here. Um Someone comments on it, okay? Um, said, you enter a show, you get into a show, or something happens that the outside world says, yeah, this is good. And then that third corner, which is the most elusive, is wallet satisfaction. And in an ideal world, okay, we would be dead center all the time. And wouldn't that be great? Yeah, but that doesn't happen. Sometimes we do something, just we have to do it, and we get no validation, and there is no sale. Um, sometimes we get ego satisfaction, and we sell something. So I think it all works together, but you know, uh, we, we need a sale now and then just as a way of saying that, yeah, um, you know, this is, this is good. This is, this is worth doing, and I'm hopeful that um, more will happen. I think that if you stake your self-esteem on being down in that one corner or dead center all the time, you're setting yourself up for, um, you know, feeling pretty bad. So what I can do by collecting is, again, give people a little bit of validation that this, this was worth spending some money on, whether it's one Tez or, you know, 0.03 ETH. And um, yeah, I think I've gone as high as about uh, um, 0.07. But anyways, that, that's kind of how I got to collecting and what I collect. 
Well, thank goodness for Andrew Meese, right? <laughs> I, I actually do know Andrew through the space, and he actually collected a piece from me, one of the very earliest earliest pieces uh, from my wildlife photography that I minted back in the day, uh, which was only like a year ago or so, <laughs> you know, back when we were all much younger and in the in the bear market of last year. But so I and I, I remember he was always involved in something like with the metaverse and, you know, buying real estate in the metaverse and everything. And I was just like, wow, some of this is just going way too fast to uh, to really keep up. But I think I think it is good advice. And it's something that that helps, you know, it just helps this whole space keep going. Like you said, artists who a lot of times artists will buy from other artists. And that's a great way to show your your, you know, share the wealth and also just show that you're here for the art and you're here for the reasons of that, you know, validating each other that your work is good. And I, I just think that's really cool. It's really, really exciting. I, it's, it is a pretty fascinating collector origin story. Thank you for sharing that. Well, you're welcome. And yes, Andrew is into more stuff that I don't understand. He might as well be talking quantum physics. Um, I mean, this guy's into everything. And he's a, a damn good photographer, too. So uh, I'm glad that he collected a piece of yours. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think Ev said in one of his articles, and correct me if I'm wrong, Ev, that there's uh, really three pools of collectors out there. You're whales, and there aren't a lot of them who are buying stuff for Big East, and those are far and few between. And a mid-group who, uh, I don't know if I have this right, they're anywhere from, you know, one to three, four, five ETH, something like that, correct me if I'm wrong. But the largest pool is um, us, uh, artists who are supporting each other. And uh, it's interesting, I have friends uh, in um, who are traditional photographers and painters, and they think I'm nuts. Like, what is the point? Um, and sometimes they get annoyed. You're giving away your work for that? No, I'm not giving away anything. I'm basically selling a non-fungible token. So like that piece that is up now, um, I think, you, yeah, Nature's Layer Cake, which, by the way, um, thanks to everybody in the room who's uh, purchased an edition, and there are some, that title was Pam's, and it stuck. So hats off to her, and she's also blessed the next one, which is actually a puffy sunset. It's going to be called Nature's Cotton Candy. Uh, anyways, um, so this particular piece here, yeah, I mean, if I were to print this thing out, and frame it and make it really large because it wants to be large and if a gallery took it on and there's several that i work with put a price tag of at least three thousand dollars on that and figure the gallery if it sells would take 50 percent so i'm down to 1500 versus i think each of these editions what is it about 30 bucks or so depending on the cost of ETH, and uh it's like you know, a lot less than the print would be. But the point is, as I try to explain to them, I haven't given anything up at all. I can still do this. I, I can print this. Um, the only thing I can't do, since I've already minted it, is remint it. But, um, you know, I think that there's a, a lack of understanding with traditional artists and photographers and how, and I realize I'm going sideways on us here, um, that... Um, it's a, it's a different avenue for showing and possibly selling your work and that it can all coexist. So I think that, um, 
it's incumbent on all of us to educate our friends uh, about, you know, how this works and what the opportunities are. So I know that was totally sideways, but we can go back to your question. Well, I guess let's let's talk about nature's layer cake first of all. I would love to, <laughs> since since this is a uh, this is one of those pieces that you know, the, like so the strategy that you you were mentioning um, or the 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 different kind of groups of collectors that that you recounted very well from what Ev outlined in in his article that there you know at at, at one echelon one tier of that there are the sort of community level collectors who they really want to show their support, but they're not going to be the whales who can spend, you know, many, many ETH on a piece. But there's still that that desire to, you know, be part of each other's lives and each other's journeys. I know anytime I've pop, bought a piece of art, even if it's someone, you know, who's on the street and selling their art, you know, I, I absolutely remember everything about that interaction. And I just, every time I see that art, I can kind of place myself back there, um, talking with the artist about how they made it and, you know, seeing also the, the appreciation that someone, you know, is going to spend some money on something that they've made. And it might just be an addition of like a print of a, um, of a piece that they've made. But it, it, it does mean something to have to have someone who appreciates art for the creative side of things to to really be like, yeah, I love what you're doing here with this art. So uh, that the the addition seems to be a really great way as NFT artists for us to to make that sort of transaction possible for for collectors who are our peers and our you know our community um, even though you know there there may be other work that we put out there that is definitely of a different I don't want to say caliber necessarily, but like of a different sort of importance in in your own body of work, and and those you know can command high prices. At the same time, you've got work out there that is is approachable for community level collectors, and I think I think it's really cool. We've we've seen a lot of success for people doing doing that sort of two pronged approach. So nature's layer cake. <laughs> when you when you posted this, I think it was must have been like a GM post or something, and I saw it, and I think I just blurted that out in my GM back to you like oh it looks like nature's layer cake because this is such a beautifully layered photo is this is this one of these like the world as seen this isn't your reimagining the world right nope this is world as seen and my philosophy is it's, it's kind of a Star Trek principle you know the non-interference principle where you you don't muddle in you know other people's cultures I can do the same thing and that if I'm on the street and I see an interesting pattern, like right now around my neighborhood, they're marking uh, the sidewalks and streets for some uh, sewer work. And um, I, my, uh, <laughs> my business partner down there just DM me and he said, prime directive. So yes, thank you. Um, he's of a younger age. Anyways, thank you, Ken. And um, anyways, um, this is going to be part of a series called Urban Crop Signs. I've been photographing these things for years and have actually talked with the people who do the spray painting. It's really cool. They're almost like graffiti artists. They all have a style and a flair. So these things are almost like tags. Anyways, um, everyday leaves are falling and uh, you know some of them get obscured and some are really quite lovely with the leaves on there. Uh, when I go out 
and I'm never out without a camera. I don't move leaves around. I don't move sticks around. I don't put things uh, where they don't belong. I was walking through a place called Davis Square, and uh, someone had put a little whiskey nip bottle inside of a fire hose um, connection. And it's, it's cool, and it's going to be a cool picture, but I wouldn't stick it in there. Anyhow, uh, same thing with landscapes. Uh, other than compensating for the fact that compared to the human eye brain apparatus, cameras are incredibly stupid, uh, and there's things that one has to do. Uh, no matter how good you are and what the gear is. So other than smoothing some things out in post-production, maybe shadow recovery, I'm a big fan of Etter exposed to the right. Uh, you know, with, with film cameras, you could recover highlights with analog film, but you really can't recover shadows with digital. It's just the opposite. If there's anyone technical down there who wants to challenge that, please do. I am not that technical in that regard, but I think that's correct. So if you blow, blow out the highlights with digital film, I'm rather with a digital camera, you ain't getting them back. And um, when uh, I took this picture here and the sun was really beating on the clouds, okay, if I hadn't exposed to the right watching the histogram and exposing for that bright band of clouds, then there's no way I would have gotten it. It would have been a terrible picture. I knew when I got back that the raw image okay, beneath the clouds was going to look like crap. It would just be sheer mush. And in fact, it was all there in the shadows, which is why, what do we do? We shoot raw. And we do that so that we can recover shadows and other mid-tone details. So um, did I manipulate this? Only insofar as in the exposure, making sure that the highlights weren't blown out. Um, I posted another one here of the, uh, I think it's up here. Yeah, a couple here. One is a Grand Canyon. It's the green one. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty. Thank you. The river, okay, if I hadn't exposed for that and... Again, Edder exposed to the right, then that would have been just this white blob out there, and everything else have recovered from shadows. There's another one here. It's a black and white of um, Iceland here. Same deal, okay? That without exposing to the highlights, there wouldn't be anything there except uh, you know, just mush. So, in terms of what did I do? Uh, exposed through Edder, bracketed it. And then in post did whatever smoothing needed to be done. Really good, really good plan. So, are you shooting in manual when you're doing this at all times, or are you always just just keeping an eye on on that histogram? Yeah, no, yeah. Always, manual. always in manual and mm -hmm. uh, constantly. If uh, if I'm shooting at sunset or sunrise and it's moving fast, it's going to be a lot of shots there. And um, but you know the histogram rules because it doesn't lie it is going to show you when things are blown out and when they're not yeah and i i was reading the story about the how, getting this shot do you want to you want to put us in put us take us take us through the story <laughs> it seems like um well, first of all, you start off by saying the most remarkable scenes often appear just after you pick up your gear. <laughs> that sounds like a great first line to a novel. What happened that allowed you to get this shot? Oop, did we lose you? Oop, I'm sorry. Basically, oh, luck. That's okay. <laughs> um, so oftentimes, I, we've all experienced this. You pack up your gear, and you then turn around, and then all of a sudden, 
this, you know, sunset or the sky that was blah is electric. And you go, I got to break out the gear. And by the time you've broken out the gear, it's changed. I actually saw someone go nuts at uh, in Death Valley when um, he'd been up there all day photographing and packed it up, was walking down. And then he looked over his shoulder and he was just so upset. I'm surprised he didn't throw his uh, gear off as a brisky point. But um, yeah, that happens to all of us. And in this case, after uh, you know a nice day of hiking with my son in the Northgate Peaks, the sky was, there was some thunder and we were up pretty high and Northgate is easy. It's... Um, uh, it's basically level hiking for the most part, but it's up fairly high. We said, nah, it's probably a good idea to start heading back to Springdale, which is about 40 miles away. And as we're coming down the road in uh, Kolob Terrace, it's a little bit windy. All of a sudden, there's the scene that you see, nature's layer cake. So it's one of these kind of slam on the brakes, pull, you know, pull over without getting killed and pop the trunk open and get set up. I only shoot on a tripod. I, I have never shot landscape without it. Uh, the D850 is a bit of a monster, especially when you throw on a big lens. And um, the tripod makes all the difference in the world, so you don't have to think about things like, um, you know, am I level? You know, have I eliminated shake and all that? Even with VR, um, I still prefer a, uh, a tripod. Anyways, it was this amazing thing because you're above the clouds and at least you're level with the clouds. And I just love this setting here and sat there and bra- shot off a bunch of bracketed shots. And no sooner had I put it away, the camera away, than it was gone. And um, had I waited another five minutes, it wouldn't have been there. So, um, you know, I think the moral is when you think you're done shooting, don't put it away and be ready to seize the moment. Very good advice. <laughs> that's, that's, I think, I, I love the idea, you know, just the, the tip of like, always look over your shoulder, like what's behind you. <laughs> There's that, that, that happened, that happened to me uh, yesterday. I was actually out uh, doing some video of some surfers. I was standing on the pier and the surfers were doing their thing. And all of a sudden I was like, wait, it's sunset, right? I look over my shoulder I'm like, oh yeah, well, there's a gorgeous sunset happening behind me. People are like, what is wrong with that lady? Why is she faced the wrong way? But yeah, the sunset was pretty, but I wasn't there for that. But yeah, it's always, it's always good to keep our eyes open and see, see what happens. And I've always been amazed at just how fast the light moves across the things of of natural <laughs> natural construct. Because it, with you, I know you take a lot of spider web photos, and you know you're you're always looking quite closely at like drops of water and and the the beautiful things that some of us miss, even if it's you know the tagging of the spray painted sewer line <laughs> on the pavement. Um, your your environment is full of many interesting things. But have you ever noticed when you are photographing like a spider web, for example, it, it, how fast that that second of you know perfect glimmer or perfect shine just passes by? You, you can almost feel the world spinning in my mind. I, that's I've always noticed it even more when I'm looking at something super super tiny and close. Absolutely, and it's kind of an interesting balancing act Um, on the one hand you need to be meticulous when you're doing macro photography on the other hand you're fighting the elements slightest bit of wind and everything changes and if you're photographing at the end of say a rain shower just afterwards when the sun comes out 
it's amazing that a spider web can evaporate in a matter of seconds. So you're constantly, you know, dealing with with both. So absolutely, <laughs> I've been there. I want to go back to your your surfer example there. I think one of the good things to do, and it's painful, uh, is to keep a, a list of great photographs that you never took. <laughs> and uh, the reason is not that you weren't there, it's because you weren't there. Maybe you had a camera in hand, but you were busy doing what? Looking at your phone or listening to something with your headphones and you don't notice something going by. Um, that, that, that happens a lot. I mean, I'm never out without a camera, but I, I, I miss a lot of shots. And, you know, you can beat yourself up for it. Uh, you know, that's one thing. But you could also say, hey, this is a reminder. Just keep your eyes open. It'll keep you from falling, for one thing. But um, uh, during the pandemic, and, and I'd love to spend a moment or two talking about the arts and literary pub that I started called the Pandemic Lens. Um, there were two shots that I know of that I missed, probably more than that, that, um, you know, I, I just really regretted afterwards. You know what I was doing? I was looking at my phone. I was checking email. I was, it was just really stupid. But, and this is the price that we pay in terms of, you know, where is our attention? Um, I don't think that we have less attention than we used to have. I think that our distractibility factor is just wildly out of sync with where it ought to be. We're just so easily distracted. Anyhow, I'm walking down the street, and this was early in the pandemic. There weren't a lot of people out. Everybody was masked, and it was misty, and there was a father, and he had his young daughter in a knapsack um, around his neck. He was wearing a yellow raincoat, and he had a yellow umbrella the knapsack with the child was also um, brightly colored, and everything else was monochrome. It was mist. It was gray. It was the pandemic. It was just, it was just muck. But he stood out there, and he was slowly walking towards me, and that would have been a magnificent shot. Um, Close enough that I would have showed him, actually, and if he was uncomfortable, I wouldn't have done anything with it. It would have been a matter of, you know, do it and then ask for, you know, permission. Um, but I didn't because I was on my phone. I was probably texting with Ken or Rachel or somebody down there. Second one was during the pandemic. I was at a street corner. And um, I had my camera. Actually, I've got a, a Fuji X100F and an X-T3. Uh, those are the two that I usually have with me. If I just have one, it's the X100F because it's discrete. If I want to have two, I'll use the X-T3 and put the 35 or the 56 millimeter lens on it. Anyways, I'm in a corner and I hear a noise and uh, didn't think anything of it. Looked down back at my phone. And then I looked up, and there was uh, a woman who was on a moped, and she had a large helmet on, with a, rather a helmet with a large plexiglass visor, and underneath it was a mask. Now, mind you, at this time, wearing masks outside was just, you know, we didn't know about that. We didn't do that. It was very bizarre. And her pose, the light, everything would have made for a great shot. 
in terms of saying, hey, this is the pandemic, you know, phase two, people are starting to move around. But I didn't because I was occupied with my phone. And Ken down there, if it was you, your fault. Anyways, um, so I think that paying attention to what we miss is really important. Um, I think also to flip back to landscape for a second, to be able to, if you have the luxury of pre-visualizing, which is a stupid term, how do you pre-visualize? Anyways, um, a scene before you actually shoot is a really good thing. When I took that Grand Canyon shot, I had um, uh, hired a guy, Andrew Shallow, who was then the artist in residence at Grand Canyon. He's an amazing photographer. And you know, I said, hey, I want you to take me someplace where um, nobody else is going to be and you're not going to get me killed. So um, actually, the places I could have gotten killed, but he didn't let me get killed. Anyways, um, I I was amazed the first time for the first day, I was starting to break out my gear and he said, no, just, just put it down. Let's just sit and use your fingers and create a viewfinder and just look around. And look at the light. Look at how you're going to frame. And he said, you know, when you take a photo of the Grand Canyon, you don't take a photo of the Grand Canyon. You cannot take a picture of something that's 277 miles long and 31 miles wide. You take a little section and put away your wide-angle lens, take out your longest lens. What you're going to get is basically going to fill your entire viewfinder with layers. And uh, that was the last time that I actually brought a wide-angle with me on a landscape trip. The uh, Nature's Layer Cake, by the way, that was on my seven, with my 70 to 200, and that was... 160 millimeters was the focal length there for that one. So, um, you know, figure out what you've missed. And also when you have the luxury, figure out how you're not going to miss something. I mean, if the sunset's happening, okay, that's not the time to pre-visualize. But if you've got the luxury of doing that in frame, do that too. So uh, I think that being circumspect about what we do versus capturing something in the moment when we have to, it's a balance of those two things. That's really good advice for the artist. Um, I want to, two things are coming to mind. One of them is I want to know more about this pandemic lens. Is this a journal that people, like, was it like an art scene or how, what, what was the format that people could appreciate this pandemic lens publication from you? I think your mic's not on. Oops, sorry about that. So um, back around May, end of May, early June 2020, um, gosh, we have to talk in years now with this thing, you know, um, I basically came out from under the bed and um, started to walk around the neighborhood a little bit. So with trepidation, mask and camera, I walked up to this wonderful place called Davis Square, where there's a wonderful theater. It's about 10 minutes from my house. Great old theater. And they had a a sign up that says, stay home, stay safe, we will be open soon. Uh, They were open two and a half years later, actually. And I took a picture, I'm going to try to find it while I talk here, of um, two people who were masked and they were crisscrossing under the marquee. And I thought, this is not a bad photo. Why don't I just, you know, continue around and see how businesses are getting ready to reopen. And there were a few that were starting to do um, business from their doorsteps, from booths that they set up outside. It was a pretty wild scene. And I started to post them on the blog on my website. I don't have a blog anymore. I'm going to restart one. 
And I started to post them on Instagram and got a really good response. And then I started thinking, eh, okay, um, maybe I should start a dedicated blog that's dedicated to the pandemic and call it the Pandemic Chronicles. And I, uh, I did that. And then I started thinking, I'm meeting all these people on Instagram uh, who are photographers and artists who are struggling with expressing their reaction to the time of Corona. Why not invite them? And I did. And they were submitting things. Uh, long story short, uh, and with uh, Ken's help down there, launched an arts and literary publication that's a magazine-like blog. And over the course of the first year of the pandemic, it was getting tens of thousands of views. And I had photography, uh, painting, um, essays, uh, some from Pulitzer Prize winning uh, authors, music and videos. And um, it was probably the most, I felt it was one of the most important things that I've ever done. Um, and then now, well, until recently, it's kind of wound down because I haven't put a lot into it. However, since meeting all these great people on Twitter and on Vero, okay, all of a sudden now I am seeing photographs from 2020, 2021 that are absolutely outstanding, uh, as well as photographs uh, from you know contemporary times. And, you know, life has changed forever. So I'm going to actually redesign the publication so it's organized by years and um, continue to invite people. And I think that it's um, uh, going to once again become uh, an important part of my life. So let me see if I can find one thing which I think epitomizes the lens here coming up. Oh, this is horrible. I'm just having to scroll through and find things. While you're doing we that, uh, I, got it. It. Okay. I got it. Okay. I, and what what a great what a great project. I mean, I, I'm sure that all the different artists who who were participating in it really appreciated someone kind of taking charge and and having a having a place to sort of aggregate this all these works that really express a a and you know like reaction to what we were all facing i'm sure there's a lot of common threads people can find in all these works and in the the writings and everything oh okay cool i see this one that you just posted yeah actually swati oh. has a mm. wonderful piece on here in isolation uh mm -hmm. i'll have to go dig that one up but uh yeah it's um i think that it's it's unique and it's I haven't seen anything else that used art as a way of bearing witness to what we just experienced and are still experiencing here. So this has been an important part of my life. And again, we kind of segued in here by talking about shots that we missed. And I thought of the pandemic shots. And um, that, that's how we got into this here. But it was, uh, it was uh, an amazing time to start thinking about, you know, how are we going to record this for posterity? There's some people who want behind us and don't ever want to think about it, but given the millions of lives that have lost and the fact that there's another one coming, it will come. Um, maybe not tomorrow, but it ain't going to be 100 years. This was not a hundred once in a 100-year event. Uh, to remind ourselves of how our lives transformed you know, around this microbe, even though we are in, you know, the 21st century here. So that's what the pandemic lens is all about. Well, it's a really cool project. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for creating it. It sounds like you're, 
you you say you are you are a creative director at a company that publishes. Is, did I get this right? You publish books. Is are they art books? Um, right on one of the uh, three, two wrong on the other two. So, uh, Authorbytes is a web design and development firm that specializes in creating websites for authors and publishers. Right now we have over 600 active clients. Um, I fell into that by accident, okay? I had been uh, in another incarnation, was working as a media trainer and and strategic message development consultant to technology companies throughout part of the 90s. Uh, That came after being a tech journalist for a bit. And... In 1999, the tech bubble burst, and literally, the lights went out in Silicon Valley. These big campuses where I used to go and get paid very, very well to consult with executives and teach them how to think about their messaging and present it, the lights were out. And there wasn't a lot of work. I was going out from Cambridge to California three times a month sometimes on a moment's notice. And the lights, as I said, it went dark. But the coffin nails in the kind of travel that I was doing, which is get up in the morning, get a call, hop on a plane and go to the West Coast, then go up to Seattle, come back down. Anyways, that was gone and had to do something and had uh, an opportunity to put together a website for a New York Times bestselling author through a friend who um, I didn't know anything about websites, but I had, you know, I knew enough web people who were in graphic design and did some web work that I put this thing together. And his publisher, Random House, said, this is the future. This is great. Um, so they started sending all these New York Times number one bestselling authors to me. And before I knew it, I had a company that had you know the cream of the crop in terms of authors, and they were getting websites. Uh, back then, I was the only one doing it. Now we have lots of competitors. Anyways, it was supposed to be a one-year adventure, but it's now a 22-year adventure, and largely thanks to my business partner down there, Ken, uh, the company's been transformed into a lean machine that uh, I think does beautiful work and technology-wise is second to none. As the creative director, I bless design, and that's the part that I like the most. Uh, I also work with organizations to develop affiliate programs with us so that we can become part of their membership package. I enjoy that a lot. I don't do any coding if I went near a website. Um, Ken and the rest of the team would stop me. Um, uh, Ken wears a very large shoe. And... uh, Basically, my job is to make sure that design is on target. So it's a lot of satisfaction, and it puts peanut butter on the table, takes pressure off of having to sell. Uh, you know, I do like to sell. I look forward to a time when I'll just be doing nothing but that. But I, you know, I need to build up my corporate practice again and reestablish relationships with some of the galleries that I've dealt with. So that's what Author Bites is, and that's what I do. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, thank you for for clarifying that. And I, I, I see Ken down there, and I also I know there's a few other folks that you've mentioned that are part of your journey. And I just wanted to put the invitation out there. We would love to have anyone come up and join us here to, uh, if you have questions of your own for Steve, uh, let's let's uh, just let everyone know. You guys are welcome to come on up and, and ask what questions that you want. So backing up just a bit, 
I so you were framing you were sitting there with the artist in residence at the Grand Canyon wondering you know what are we you're ready to go around and, and start shooting things and he's like nope put on the brakes let's just sit here and frame the landscape with our fingers right so that framing the landscape with our fingers that's the like slick a logo <laughs> if you did that if you were like doing the little like director you know film director like look like how are you going to frame it up but I guess if you make the full frame were you just doing like thumbs touching or were you thumbs and forefingers like opposite touching so you have a full square yes. like a rectangle yes <laughs> the idea was to simulate a viewfinder and you are right i'm looking at um your profile pic and that is exactly what one does with their thumb and uh forefingers you create a viewfinder and you know you look through it so uh that was a very keen observation pam <laughs> well so when we got this new logo right because like a, when if anyone is an OG with us back in our community, you know we've we've been uh, we've been selling NFTs on the Slika platform since the the first launch was back in September fifteenth, twenty twenty one. Of course, that was a series by Ev, who it was called California Dreaming, and it was a bunch of photos uh, all over California. So we had a we had a logo at that time that was a little a little different, and when this one came about. Uh, this one was meant to look like a viewfinder and meant to kind of do that that finger thing, you know, with you, you you kind of touch your thumb to your forefinger and your opposite thumb to your forefinger, so you can create this visual viewfinder for yourself. And we actually shot pictures of ourselves doing that, you know, like our our Discord and our our fun our fun channels have pictures of us doing that. And we actually had invited the community to send us some of those pictures too back when we first launched the logo. So. I just ha was having a little nostalgic moment thinking of you in the Grand Canyon with this artist in residence, you know, making this like a logo to look through. <laughs> hey, I, I, I think that could be great. Maybe, uh, Ev, if you're, if you're listening there, maybe you could um, actually merchandise this. So as a product that you could actually take with you, an all-weather version with like a, uh, you know, a little handle on it, like a mask, you know, uh, like uh, you costume ball mask and you hold it up and look around there and you get this like a view i like it i like it we'll have to we'll have to see what we'll have to see what kind of uh, swag and merch comes out of this little conversation i wanted to just also say hello and welcome to the stage to dave yoder who's just joined us as a speaker hey dave it's been a long time since we talked to you welcome wow I don't have hello um hi i just uh just got back from portland back in France, uh, a little bit frazzled, um, and I apologize, I'm carrying a baby downstairs right now where I can speak without uh, interference, uh, apologize for that. Um, yeah, I, I was like curious about, um, uh, regarding the, the uh, Grand Canyon landscape, or uh, however you prefer to call it, um, how you handle uh, highlights versus uh, well, clipping basically um, between highlights and and blacks, and uh, you know, there's a lot less uh, risk of of clipping blacks than highlights. Um, and I apologize if you covered this already, but um, you know, is it do, do you like layer your images, or is it all one one image, and you? Uh, you, you expose the right or expose the left or or what do you do? Well, and by the way, that uh, that I, I just uh, took a quick look at your image 
fashionista that's fantastic that's great that's 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 a beauty um yeah earlier we had talked about using etter exposing to the right so that constantly using the histogram making sure that you're just up to the edge there with the highlights and not really caring about the rest of it because when you're shooting in raw you can recover that so um uh, exposing to the right is one of the key tools that I'll use, and that is both in the Grand Canyon shot. It's also in the Nature's um, layer cake as well. So, so you don't you don't uh, layer photographs at all. Uh, you just work with you. You work from one one image. There is only one time I'll layer a photograph. Uh, well, let me back up a step. Okay. Uh, I take both traditional photographs and I do abstract composites, which are many, many layers. There's a, a Sloika drop that uh, sold out pretty quickly. I'm pleased. That had over 200 photos on it. And, Pam, maybe we can find that. But um, when it comes to landscape and uh, street photography, no, one image. What is the one exception? The moon, Okay. Uh, maybe it's me, but I don't think there's a way to actually capture both the moon and everything else and have both of them properly exposed. So what I'll do if it's a full moon is I'll shoot the moon. I won't change the relative size, okay, but I'll expose for that. Then uh, what I'll do is make that a layer and just layer that into the image. Yeah, yeah, there's no way to do that with the moon, at least not with the sensors that are out now. Um, I was, like, uh, recently appalled to, to see, like, a friend of mine in a video using a, uh, a gradient uh, neutral, desin uh, neutral density filter to bring down the skies on a, on a shoot, I won't say for the publication, um, and, and I'm wondering, I've, I've like always avoided stuff like that just because I feel like it's gimmicky, but now I kind of wonder whether it's a bit judgmental because, you know, I'm like using neutral density filters for other things, but, but not as gradients. And I'm wondering if you've ever used that and if you've ever, uh, if you have any feelings about that, uh, as well. I do. I have nothing against an ND filter uh, when it's a piece of glass, although I try to avoid filters as much as possible. Uh, unless I'm in a really tough environment, uh, I just uh, won't even use a, uh, you know, a UV filter to protect the lens. So, um, however, when it comes to applying gradients in post, uh, no. Um, when I do my abstract mashups, anything goes, and I'm uh, and I go gradient wild. But my my feeling is that do what you need to do to compensate for the limitations of the camera compared to the human eye and brain. I mean, think about it: that you don't have to go zooming with your feet to have object constancy. Okay, you don't have to be doing all sorts of things to compensate for highlights and shadows. Your eye brain just does it automatically. I mean, you can have a $150,000, you know, phase, uh, you know, camera and lens, and it's still going to be subject to the same problems that um, the human eye and brain, what we see and what we want to represent, okay, um, nothing mechanical and optical or even electronic is going to 
be able to faithfully reproduce that without some kind of interventions. An intervention is could be exposing to the right. To me, that's the least invasive. Um, it could be applying a gradient later, um, but if there was nothing there other than to make it look better, then I'm with you that I, I don't think that that's fair game. So everyone has to establish their own level of comfort with what they're doing and be transparent about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose um, this is like in these are areas that I need to work through myself because I've, you know, I, I'm against neutral gradient filters, but I'm okay with it in post and, and you know, I like I want, I want the images to, uh, you know, reflect what, what I see with the human eye, but, um, but I shoot in, in, you know, in raw so they don't when I shoot them and you know there, there's like a lot of uh, I don't want to like call it ethical decisions because it's not really that extreme but um, but I'm, I'm just like kind of like reconfiguring how I think about everything at this point uh, in terms of the new technology particularly the, since I'm shooting video now um, and you know it's 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 all you know pretty interesting like you know the the uh, exposing to the right, um, it 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 also presents some um, some problems of its own because like you can't really expose to the right and shoot moments reliably because you know you're gonna you're you're, you're gonna end up clipping stuff by accident you know and uh, whereas if you have everything set up on a tripod and you have control of the situation then. And it's gonna it's gonna work better, um, and I think it it's particularly uh, relevant to video um, because the codecs are basically like shooting crappy JPEGs, you know. So you really don't have a whole lot of um, <clears throat> leniency. Uh, so basically, I'm rambling at this point, but I I just got back from Portland an hour ago. Um, to France, and so like my brain isn't working functionally. Uh, so um, I'll I'll just stop now. Well, you raised some good points there, and I, I'm glad that you did. Um, this editor technique—it's not the be-all and the end-all for everything. Uh, you certainly wouldn't use it in sports, and you wouldn't use it on the street. It's for when you have the luxury of being set up, and um, you can. Uh, you know, basically make changes and evaluate evaluate what's going on. No, it's it's worthless for a, a moment to moment. Uh, so I think that's a good point. Is when you hear about a technique, just remember that it's context sensitive. It depends on what you're doing. So good luck getting over your jet lag. That's a long haul. I assume you mean Portland, Oregon, not Portland, Maine. Oh yeah, Portland, Oregon. Yeah, that's um, a haul. Yeah, and actually, while I was there, um, I, I needed a tripod, and it got me invited to speak to a journalism class at at uh, University of Oregon, um, and they've got a tremendous program there. Um, I, I met the faculty and some of the students, and if anybody has ever thought about taking photojournalism courses, uh, um, just as an aside, that's. Uh, they, they've in Eugene, Oregon. They've got a fantastic staff that I'd never even known about, um, other than some of the names. But yeah, I just got back from Eugene, uh, Oregon. Flew out of Portland, and uh, my brain is fried. So uh, I'm sure somebody has uh, 
somebody else on deck has something better to say than I do. So anyway, thanks. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Dave. And uh, I hope that you get over all the the jet lag or exhaustion that travel can cause. But I think I think you're right. You know, when you're like if you're shooting video, uh, there's there's not as much leeway to fix that in post. You really do have to make sure that you're not shooting something that will be unusable to the editor later. And it's really impossible to to recover highlights that are just not there. You know, like anything in the the blown out spectrum. If there's no details there, there's just no details. So it's, it's 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 a little trickier, and and I think Steve, you are thinking the right way too. You know, even when you do have the chance to fix something in post in stills, that that having having information there in the highlights is is recover. You know, is that's that makes the image more recoverable. If you print something that has no detail in the highlights, there's not going to be any you know ink on the page there, basically. So it will look very strange. Yeah, and just to go back to Dave's point too, uh, you know, in terms of you have to make decisions about what you're comfortable with, and and I think it comes down to, and we've talked about this in a lot of spaces, in terms of how far can you push it to the point where you say, this is my interpretation, or this is an artistic rendering of what I saw versus this is what I saw, this is what it was. And that really runs the gamut from, you know, purists who do nothing to people who are willing to remove trees. Um, There's a big flap now going on with that wildlife photographer and the snow leopards. Um, I don't know if anybody's following that now. But basically, uh, you know, they were originally pitched as these are incredible captures. I mean, it's something like four snow leopards in one day. People spend an entire lifetime. No, they were composites. No one knows where the leopards come from, but uh, actually came from, but they were composites. Now, she wouldn't have run into trouble if she would have said right out the gate that these are my feelings about what it you know would be like to capture a snow leopard in the Himalayas and say what um you know what her her why she did it her technique is great she's great at photoshop no question about it but eventually it was unraveled when people recognized uh two different mountains that were separated by you know six seven eight ten miles or so and it just couldn't be so i think that and she's now i mean i feel bad for her and that her career is wrecked. Um, So, you know, we need to talk about, um, you know, being transparent in terms of what have we actually done to something. And for me, it's real easy by having the schism between the world is seen and the world is reimagined. One, if if you look at those mashups that I showed you before up in the nest, you know, if you think that um, that could have been real, then you need to go to the optometrist or maybe a neurologist, okay? Um, I mean, basically, those are obvious. And I'll usually say New York City reimagined or whatever. But um, by having this division between, you know, as Ken pointed out, the prime directive here, no touch or minimal touch when it comes to processing versus, hey, I'm going to reconstruct the world based on these photographs that it might be of oh subjects that are separated by thousands of miles and years so time and space and i'm coming up with this um image that captures what i feel is the essence of a b or c so i think that coming up with our own 
I don't use moral compass, but compass for that is really important. And by the way, we had talked about compositing before. I just put up Moondrops. You remember that one? Yes, I, I tweeted it real quickly. And put ah. up there too. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, so that's the one that you were talking about that, that contains over 200 different images, yep. right? Yep. And that is pure layered. And, you know, some people have said to me, gosh, that's amazing. You know, how did you shoot the moon? Were you like underground? No, the moon is put in there. <laughs> There's no way to make that happen. But I take that as a compliment, too. If it looks that seamless, then, um, you know, fantastic. But um, I didn't think it was necessary to actually explain that this was a composite. Um, anyways, and by the way, I'm, you, you folks did a great job on Sloika with that. And it's like, uh, it was great to sell that out. Um, and by the way, I also want to thank you and Kaveen and whoever else was working on the drop for Nature's Layer Cake. There was, uh, it happened fast. It was kind of last minute decision to do that. And um, it was only like a few days. And um, there was something wrong when I minted it. It would only mint five edition. Turns out that the problem was between the keyboard and the chair, my chair. I had used the wrong form. <laughs> it hadn't indicated uh, exactly what, uh, what I wanted. But um, within a matter of hours, they had it uh, corrected. And uh, I really appreciate that. You know, here, I'm going to do a, a Sloika plug here. And no, I am not a paid fanboy, although I am definitely a fan. Rigmarole, I got to do all these forms, and, you know, it's onboarded by people. It's, you know, it's not, you know, why don't they have a platform you can just, and, well, I don't know what's in the future, but let me tell you, those people support you, and they can move pretty quickly, and they can make things right very fast. Um, I just posted something here, which is, I hope everyone recognizes this is a composite. Uh, this is a piece that's on foundation right now, and it is various scenes from New York, mainly around the Chelsea area, um, some a little further up. But, you know, there's no question this is a composite, right? Right. I mean, if you're questioning that, this is this really out there, then, again, time to go to the eye doctor. But I do these things to capture the mood, the vibe of a place, you know, at a certain time. In this case, it was uh, night. A lot of these images were shot on a, a wintry night, and there's no snow here, but it kind of cleared. But you could see the woman in the windows kind of bundled up, and the streets are deserted, slightly slick. So, you know, if you have a vision for what you're trying to do with the piece, it becomes a matter of accident and intention. Intention is to portray this. The accident is how does it all fit together. So, yeah, it's a matter of, in the name of transparency, yes, this is a composite. Very nice soundbite. Where, what, where were you speaking when you said all those things? Steve, did we lose you? I don't hear you. Steve, are you there? I was wondering where you were saying these things. It sounded like nope. you were playing. I am space. back. No, I <laughs> had another pair of Bluetooth phones that uh, just finished charging. And of course, you know, what happens when a pair of Bluetooth headphones gets charged? It wants to take over. Anyway, sorry. Uh, so I missed that for a few seconds there. Oh, that's okay. Uh, we were just, we were hearing a, it sounded like you were playing a recording of yourself talking about how amazing Sloika was <laughs> while you were talking about a piece, um, the, a, a composite piece you did in New York. So, ah, okay. Um, but we've got you back now. Back. Yeah. Yeah. I, 
the, the Bluetooth the Bluetooth headphones are just great until they're not <laughs> until they need recharging and then they don't give you any warning. Um, so yeah, I, I wanted to ask a couple more questions, but we've got a, a friend who's joined us now, Andrea Pritchard, who's just joined us on stage, and I want to say welcome. Hi, 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 Steve. Hi, Pam. Um, uh, hi, everybody. I just wanted to come up, and I came in a little late because I was in a meeting, but as soon as I was free, I. I popped in because I wanted to be here for Steve's uh, launch. And uh, I just wanted to say uh, what a pleasure it is to get to know Steve and his work and his ideas and his thoughts and his professionalism. Um, he's just a, an incredible um, person and uh, extremely interesting and versatile artist. Uh, it's really amazing to see what he's done and um, uh, absolute pleasure. And uh, the latest drop is absolutely beautiful. I'm, I'm looking forward to following it and yourself further as I do. Um, but yeah, congratulations on everything. And I just wanted to, you know, put in my two cents and, um, and yeah, thank you for being there for everyone because you truly are. And uh, thank you for sharing your knowledge and, and everything that you are. And I love how transparent you are. And I think that is important. So thanks so much, Steve, for everything. And uh, thank you for, uh, for doing this launch. It's like it. It's great to be here. Well, that's very kind of you. And um, there should be a blushing emoji, you know, when someone's saying something kind about you. I do appreciate that. Um, and uh, I got to know Andrea a little bit better during a Zoom session. She had some questions about, um, you know, placing art in corporate environments. And, um, what would have been a you know five ten minute phone call turned into a wonderful hour long Zoom chat, and I have to say you, my friend, are a very well kept secret. Andrea is not only a uh, wonderful photographer, but she's a filmmaker, um, graphic artist, and um, uh, just uh, you know way too humble. So really beautiful, beautiful work. Okay, now I'm blushing. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Uh, but it is about you today, so you're just going to have to suck that up. But uh, thank you. Congratulations. And our Zoom call, by the way, was amazing. Uh, it was just great. I mean, it felt like five minutes, really, uh, five or ten, and and it zoomed by, as a Zoom call should. Um, but it was it was really wonderful, and uh, I think we had a, a real a great conversation and a great connection. So um, I thank you, and I wanted to be here for you. I'm glad you are, and I felt the same. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Andrea, for joining us. And the, the so back to um, the 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 work that you collect, Steve. I know we we I would I wanted to loop back to that because it sounded so we we heard about your strategy of not necessarily buying like one one big piece, but try to find pieces that are in those in in the range of I think you said point zero two to point zero three if I recall. And I was just curious how you find these pieces, because I have been in spaces before with you. And I, how did you come up with the with this idea of the challenge, sort of like a challenge, like if someone buys one within the next 10 minutes, I'll go ahead and buy another one or, or something like that. Like, it almost sounds like a an NPR fundraiser or something. It's kind of like if you call within the next hour, you know, your your uh, your donation will be doubled or something like that. It just it sounds like such a cool 
way to have people kind of get off the fence. You know, if you're thinking about doing it, like, go ahead and do it now because it'll help the artists even more. And that's exactly where it came from. I was sitting around having coffee, <laughs> listening to an NTR fundraiser, and I thought to myself, oh, there's a challenge. Why not do the same thing here? So um, I tried that out, and uh, a number of people participated where, you know, it would be, I'd go into a space and say, Okay, if anybody buys one in the next hour, I'll buy one too, even if I already own one. And then people, it was great, would naturally pay it forward. Jason did that, and um, Sush did that. And, um, you know, it became a thing for a while. I haven't done it for a little bit, but uh, I might pull that out of the hat again. But it was uh, definitely very much stimulated by this idea of, you know, we can help each other. And if we all pay it forward, then there'll be more art that's sold. And it worked for a while anyway. So um, uh, maybe it'd be a good thing to try it again. Well, it certainly is a good technique. And so besides the times that you are in a space and and this is going on, are, are you out shopping for work? Like how do you like how can an artist hope to cross paths with you so that you might see what they're creating? Well, it's twofold. Um, I don't mind being DM'd. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily buy anything. Everything that uh, people put in front of me, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, and uh, I'm upfront with that. But the main thing is this: when you show me something, or if I find something organically. Okay, make me want to buy it. And again, we're, we're constrained by 285 characters, which, which is really tough. I understand that. Uh, some people will do these long threaded tweets. Eventually it becomes, you know, TLDR. Um, so it's a balance between them. But give me some context here, even a little bit. And, and in a way, the 285 character limit sharpens your brain and makes you write more clearly and succinctly. Uh, I'm, I'm a fairly facile writer. I used to be a full-time author, and I've written over 50 books, and I was a journalist. But I find that still doing these 285 characters is, it's almost like a haiku. And, um, you know, some of these things I'll edit a lot for my own posts or responses before, you know, hitting the tweet button. And Oftentimes, is it the sacrifice of putting hashtags down there, which I really don't care that much about because I just want to connect directly with the person. So, um, you know, tell me why. Um, if you can't articulate why it's something that I should buy or consider buying, then that's probably not going to happen. Most, But don't, don't aim it at me or any other collector. Don't, don't try to second-guess a collector. Just from the heart, talk about why you did this, what, what, what makes it work, what was the context, any little bit will help. So is story important to you when, when you're buying a piece? It's, you know, like I, I, I've heard, so I've heard people, especially in the, the wildlife world, <laughs> say, you know, describe how hard it was to get the shot. Like, it, like let's say it's an underwater shot or, or something like that. Like describe all the effort that went into getting it and all of that. And I, I'm, I'm curious as to how much that's important to you versus, you know, the, the, maybe the, the, the mental space that they were in, or maybe like some other story about the you know about the actual piece rather than 
you know, imagining like the hike up the mountain and then the, <laughs> the rain and then this and then that, like, does that make the picture better? Or is, is there like a different kind of story that, that appeals to you more when you're wanting to know, you know, the context of why should I buy this? What's the, what's the hook? The answer is yes. <laughs> let, me, let me explain that. Um, so I was talking about strictly when you're on Twitter and you're constrained to 285 characters here. Once you get me to that listing, though, and you're not constrained, okay, that is where I want to see some backstory here. And yeah, I mean, I don't really care about some romanticized thing. We, you know, um, you know we trudged for seven days and we did this and we did that. There's a photographer who I won't mention who's very, very famous and has made more money than all of us put together in this room will make over our lifetimes, talks about these arduous things, and basically he goes to the edge of the parking lot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, that's okay. No thanks. But I think talking about all it could be the historical context, um, uh, Ev is a master of that. His uh, Silent Night is great. And the piece before that was fantastic in that what he did, he's a very good writer, okay, is that he took me to that scene before he snapped the shutter. And in my mind's eye, I can imagine it. And in fact, his image was mm, kind of like a cherry on top of it all. So, and maybe it's because I'm both visually attuned, but I'm also very much attuned to the written world. And maybe I'm, you know, an oddball in that regard, but I really think that the uh, statement, and it doesn't have to be highfalutin, just talk in plain English about what motivated you? What was important here? If there's a backstory that's historical, tell me. Um, you know, I, I bought a piece by Elena the other night, and it was a wonderful little story about this Russian village. It was fantastic. I'd never even heard of it. And I like the image. I have to like the image. It has to be, it has to resonate with me. Um, you know, in, in the physical world, there are three reasons why people buy art. One, there's an emotional response. Two, okay, they're a collector, and there aren't that many out there. They think it's going to increase in value someday. Third, which is sadly, you know, a big category, it solves a problem. Damn, I got a four-foot space over my couch. What am I going to stick there? And hopefully, uh, hey, listen, uh, I told the story. I'll be real quick. I was displaying as a guest artist in a wonderful studio down in the SOA area of Boston, south of Washington. And um, um, I, I had some sales. It was going well. And then some people came in, and this woman, and I'm assuming her husband, this woman was just gushing. She was, oh, my God. And she's looking at it, and it's like she drags her husband and says, oh, wait, this is great, blah, blah, blah. And they're so excited. And they bought it. And... Um, I made the mistake of asking, you know, why there was such a strong response and why it resonated so strongly with them. And she said, oh, well, we, we have this place over our toilet, then nothing really worked there size-wise or the color. And this, this is perfect. So, okay, this is one where there was, let's go to the triangle, folks, down in the corner, wallet satisfaction. No soul satisfaction out of that one there. I was going over a toilet. Uh, footnote, um, sidebar, in some uh, galleries that are in like, um, you, you know, large renovated homes. And uh, there, there's one around here where 
I've shown a few times. Being in the bathroom is the most coveted space. Why? Because when they have their openings, which are spectacular, what room is always going to be there, especially when there's plenty of alcohol and uh, sparkling water floating around? You got it. Anyways, um, so people buy art too because it's solid space. In uh, problem in Web three, well, we don't have that physical thing. It's not like, gee, my wallet needs something that's red over there. We don't think those ways here. So. Um, you know, tell me about it and uh, make it, you know, it's, it's got to resonate with me, but then tell me the backstory. So uh, I'm also tuned into this because I've been fairly successful at getting into exhibitions and you get into exhibitions, uh, not only on the quality of the art, but the statement can make a difference. Uh, I've got a gallery that uh, likes to sell my work. And one of the things that I do is I prepare detailed sheets for them on how is this taken? What's the technical part of it? Um, and um, it makes a big difference. So anyways, tell me the story. Get me interested. Don't tell me you trudge 19 miles and um, put some time into it. Uh, it's rare that I'll buy something where someone obviously looked at the description as being an annoyance that they kind of had to do it. So they'll put in, this was a shot of such and such, period, end. Um, anyways, I see Mr. Meese has joined, and he missed all the good stuff where we were seeing all of this um, uh, great stuff about his photography and that how I drove him nuts, and he didn't have to join the witness protection program. And he's the one who told me, Steve, you got to collect. Hey, welcome, Andrew. Uh, I, yeah, it, we were talking about you earlier. I don't know if, uh, if you got clued into the fact that we had mentioned your name a few times before Andrew but um, welcome to the stage it's great to see you and I also did mention to everyone that you had collected from me as well so um, welcome it's been a long time since I've talked to you yeah well thank you so much for having me you know unfortunately I wanted to be here and I did miss like everything so I'm gonna have to go back and listen to hopefully they're you know recording afterwards um, and I do have to say, I, you know, I did, I, I wasn't sure. I was hoping I was going to, you know, be able to make it. I'm so glad that I did. So I definitely picked up, you know, a copy of uh, Steve's piece, you know, Nature's Layer Cake uh, this morning. So I got number three. And I do want to say, so ironically, I think that might have been my first piece or one of my first from Sloika. So, um, so that now I finally, uh, even though I have like 2000 or something NFTs and even, all kinds of dozens of photography NFTs. I don't know, maybe one other one was on Slowika. So this was my uh, one of my first ones, I think. And so that was really exciting. And I was so happy that, you know, even in this market, like I was able to, uh, you know, pick up one of Steve's pieces because I just, um, I've always wanted one. And, you know, the I love his his flowers and a lot of his other, um, you know, work. But I'm a, I'm a big nature guy as far as like, I mean, I like wildlife and landscapes are two of my kind of favorites. And so um, the nature's layer cake, um, you know, I, I was really a, a big or I am a big Clyde Butcher, um, you know, fan. And so, you know, he goes around, he's black and white and he does, um, you know, medium format, large format. And uh, but he does these deep landscapes. And so when I saw this, I was like, wow, you know, I uh, I was really just amazed at this this piece and I had to immediately pick it up. So I just wanted to share that with you. Wow. 
that's 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 fantastic. And 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 as I said in my uh, tweet after you'd bought that, that when you know your your mentor thinks enough to you know purchase something from you, that really means something. And I'm very grateful. Thank you, Andrew. Well, you deserve it. And like, I'm sorry, sorry, I interrupted. I just want to say, like, I'm I'm so impressed with you know how far you've come in uh, the was like 16 months or however many months it's been, and. You know, I just uh, the photography space has done so well, and I'm glad that you you've you've grown with it. And I know you've become a big collector of a lot of people, and uh, you know you're very active on social media and helping everyone out, and um, you know giving people good critiques, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and advice if they need it. And so uh, I'm so glad that you know I brought someone else to help. Um, you know, bring that to the space. And if we can all do that for one at least person, I think that that's uh, pretty incredible. So I'm, uh, I'm happy with at least myself for that. And you've done me proud. And uh, I look forward to see, you know, where the next year or two, five goes. So I'm real excited. Thank you, NFT mentor and dad. I really appreciate that. That's pretty funny that you call him dad, because I know other people call you either dad or grandpa, was it? No, <laughs> There's a I'm, lot of family I'm, ties going on out there. There are. I am, I am Subad's um, NFT grandpa, and Yavuz is his uh, uh, adopted NFT father. Uh, we work things out custody-wise, and we've almost got him um, under control. That's pretty funny. Um, yeah, it, it, these these spaces do have a, have a way of just continuing the story, don't they? I want to, Andrew. Before before you go away or have to pop onto something else, um, I was just I wanted to see how your photography is going and what if you've been shooting anything lately in the wildlife or landscape or nature kind of realm. Yeah, so I'll kind of just tell you briefly like what I've been up to. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't really been shooting very much. Um, I, I did photograph uh, the Eagles for two days here in Fort Myers, Florida after the hurricane. So we had Hurricane Ian and... Um, it was about three weeks, I think, after the hurricanes when I started photographing them. And I missed actually the first week or week and a half of them rebuilding uh, the nest. So they got started right away. And uh, so I did get some shots there. Uh, nothing really, you know, exciting that I was really hoping for. And uh, so I've that's kind of from the shooting side right now. As far as like the collecting side um, and minting side, as far as, um, you know, some of my existing works, I, uh, I currently have uh, an open edition of mine. And so uh, I, my open edition is called Naples Blues. And it's, a, uh, it's actually the cheapest edition I've ever done. Uh, I think before this, the cheapest my work you know, could be accessed was like 0.025 ETH. And so this one is actually 0.01, which is, uh, I think, you know, pretty um, accessible to a lot of people. Um, I know that it's still, you know, it's a bear market. And, you know, even that in this uh, market is still, you know, can be tough. So um, I, that was my first experiment on Manifold. And I kind of did my first uh, contract on there. And I should have done it a long time ago as far as like just to test it out, just like I probably should have you know, drop something on Slovakia a long time ago or something, you know, or tried. Um, so I finally got that done though, which is good. You know, I, I don't know why I hesitated, but for anyone listening, you know, if you're ever thinking about doing anything and making the jump to like a smart contract or manifold, um, you know, I would say just, just go do it because it's a lot easier than you, you think it's going to be. And, um, I, I, I'm glad that I did. And so what I've been doing is I've been collecting, 
um, a decent amount of photography. I've been collecting uh, a lot of editions that are um, like either Freemans or, you know, lower, maybe like around 0.01. And so I've been able to add a lot to my collection, uh, probably about 30 plus photographs, maybe 40 plus in the last month alone. Uh, so this bear market, you know, before this uh, six, eight, twelve, you know, a year ago, people were all doing one ones, and they were all like a, a quarter of an ETH or you know, point one five, and they weren't really accessible to me. And so this uh, bear market, luckily, has has given me the ability to um, buy some artists I never thought I would be able to to own, and um, you know, be able to uh, support some of my friends that I've always wanted to support a little bit, you know, financially in ways that I can. Uh, in addition to, you know, that I've been hopefully, you know, supporting them on like social media and other ways as well in the meantime. And so um, I'm kind of just taking advantage of the market in that aspect. And uh, as far as creating, though, I am doing a little bit of creating. Um, so I'm just doing I'm working on a project in the metaverse right now for Decentraland and I'm not going to get too into it, but I'm bringing my expertise of wildlife and uh, nature and helping to bring that and and make things a little more realistic uh in the metaverse so that's uh that's kind of the project i'm working on well that's pretty cool i i didn't realize that you were collecting so many pieces that's really exciting um how do you find the work that you collect is it do you have a certain way that you you notice that it's easier to kind of shop and find the things that you're looking for or do you uh, do people come and present stuff to you and you choose from what's presented? So I'm a seeker type uh, explorer personality. And so I like to go find things on my own. And so I'm constantly, anytime I'm on social media, I'm trying to find as many photographers as I can. And then I'm adding them as friends or whatever so I can follow them. And then I also have a list that I keep for all my photographers. And then what I do is, uh, I have different like feeds and different so I can look at the list and it just, you know, shows me all the photography stuff. And so, you know, I, I like to take a look at those feeds for photography, you know, just regularly and see what's going on there with all the people that that I'm following. Out, It's like 500, you know, 500 photographers now, which I know that I'm kind of falling behind on it. I need to have a lot more to do. There's probably like 200 people I need to add at least to it. So I got to I got to get doing that. But um you know, that's one of the ways. And another way is, um, so I, when I do these lists is I use TweetDeck. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but it's like a free website. And so, if you know, it's really just for PC, I think, for the most part. That's where I use it. And so when I'm on my PC, I can literally like split out my lists and it shows all of them at the same time, all of the, the updates from different people in the feeds. And it actually shows them live and everything else. And so I can keep it open during the day and, and just see you know, as things progress and what's going on. And uh, the last thing that I do is I actually do a search on Twitter and um, I literally just search free and then I type in like manifold.xyz and then that's like all the freemans that are out there. You know, most of them are underneath that category somehow um, for now. And so I've been checking those out and just, you know, doing some freemans to um, expand my collection, mostly focusing on photography and uh, glitch. That's pretty cool. I can't imagine seeing a whole bunch of different Twitter feeds all at the same time opened up on a screen, but it, it does sound kind of fun. Well, you know, where you could just, it's almost like watching uh, watching the, the leaderboard in stocks or something, or maybe even like a big train station where you try to keep track of like, or when is your train leaving and on what track it is. 
Well, it's really cool that you're, you're building some stuff in Decentraland using your knowledge of nature. And uh, I, I, I would love to hear more about that at some point. And maybe this isn't quite the space but to do it. But I was always fascinated by how deep you were getting into to things like Decentraland. And are you still finding it to be fun and still growing like you had always hoped? Well, so I'd have to say... Um, the you know the peak release uh, hype for the metaverse was really right after the the announcement from Meta back in like October of 21, and so since then it's kind of so you know what we were seeing was uh, during the the like the virus and the lockdowns and everything else was that people were you know spending more time indoors and then more people were spending time in the metaverse. But as you know, people had more freedoms and everything else. You know, they were wanting to spend more time outside. Uh, in addition to that, um, so so we're I think we're seeing less people right now currently in the metaverse because of that. And um, in addition to that, you know, there's still some technical. Um, restraints that with the current you know, limitations of the current metaverses that are out there, unfortunately, that just the the regular technology hasn't caught up to with like the blockchain technology as well. And so we're kind of like, we're, we're working on both ends to kind of bring them together, you know, but it's going to be, it's taken a lot longer than expected, unfortunately. And I think that, um, you know, that the speed at which, of course, I would want things to be uh, that they haven't really quite gone as fast and that things are probably taking two to three times longer as far as like progress, unfortunately. But, um, you know, I think that it's in a bear market, it's really hard to build no matter what it is you're building. And so right now uh, it's just it's it's brutal. And so but that there is building going on. There's a lot of projects that the Dow has founded for Decentraland specifically. And, uh, you know, I know I know a lot of the other metaverses are are really working, you know, and stepping it up. So this is the time in you know, the next year or two. I think we're going to see a lot of building going on. But as far as like mass adoption, we still I'm guessing we're still possibly years out for the most part. Like, uh, I think we're going to see some VR in 2023 and some things like that. But that's um, that's about it for the most part. There may be some mobile, but, you know, it's it's right now people really need like um a really good computer for the most part with a strong graphics card to, to really make it. Yeah, that's understandable. But to, to have to have an experience that you'd want to have again and again or or just, you know, have it to be really enjoyable, enjoy all the technology that that'll be possible. Well, I think I think it's it's cool to be building now. And I, I hope that you're enjoying that. And I'm, I'm glad that you're able to help lend your your knowledge of nature to to that project so that that can be taken into consideration. <laughs> that, that's got to feel good. It does. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for letting me speak on it. And, uh, you know, thank you, Steve, for having me up here and inviting me up. I'm you're always so friendly. And uh, so I, I know I missed a lot. And so I guess I got to, you know, I will listen and hear what I missed. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing, you know, the rest of what we have left here. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, and, oops, sorry. Oh, go ahead, Steve. No, and thank you for collecting. And by the way, um, I'd forgotten about Blue Naples. So while you were talking, uh, I just paid a forward forward and minted a couple of tokens. And uh, what a great piece there. I'm going to tweet about it now. So anyways, um, thanks for making that available at such an accessible price. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, this piece um, after... So this piece, the Naples Blues, it was my first uh, composite piece I ever made as far as um, kind of really as a photographer and artist. And I took it back in 2019. So it was, you know, the photo is older, um, but it's, it's really to this date one of the only composites almost I've ever done. And um, 
with the hurricane and having impacted and really destroyed pretty much almost all of the the <laughs> the pier you know that's kind of like my only memory right now of um of how it was and how it used to be so that morning was an incredible morning i went out there for a moonset with uh multiple photographer friends of mine and uh, was working on my long exposures of course and i knew that this was going to be one of my first uh compositions at that point in time and so uh it was a beautiful, cool morning, which was nice and fitting for the blue, uh, you know, hues of the blue hour. And, um, you know, it's some, it's a definitely a moment in time I'll never forget. And so I'm glad that, that you have a piece of that with you now, Steve, and that uh, I'm able to share that with you. So thank you for your, thank you for your support. And uh, I really appreciate it. Well, we didn't know we were going to have sales going on in this space. That's really cool. How long do you think you'll keep this open edition open? Is it is it like forever and ever, or do you have an idea of a of a deadline for yourself? So there's actually, I think I did a seven day on it, and there's actually like only one day left or less probably right now. I think it's like four p.m. Eastern tomorrow, so it's like twenty two hours. So I think there's about twenty two hours left if for anyone who is interested. Uh, in my Naples Blues edition, and it's an open edition. And just so anyone knows, anyone who mints it, I also airdrop um, four, or I'll be airdropping three Decentraland wearables of mine, and they're all owl-themed. So for anyone who does, or whenever they do go in the metaverse, for anyone who mints, uh, you will get some of those as well. And so that'll give you something to start with, and uh, so you're not completely naked. Yeah, nothing worse than being naked in the metaverse. <laughs> it's uh, it's just, it's so embarrassing. But now you have something to wear. I, I think this is really cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing about that. And that um, we've pinned, we've pinned Naples Blues to the top of the space. So people will know where to find it. And it is, it is a very nice, affordable piece. And so poignant, isn't it, that, that the pier doesn't exist like that anymore after the hurricane. And this is a, a, a nice, calm morning to to have it in our memories um, going forward. So very cool. And congrats, Steve, for, for collecting a few more. <laughs> I don't I don't so, know where you rank on the other platforms. We just know you're third here. <laughs> like, oh, I, I don't know. I wasn't in any competition. You, you kind of surprised me. But And I, I commend uh, Andrew, too, is that he says it's a composite photograph. Now, you could look at that and not know that. If you studied it very carefully, maybe you could figure it out. But uh, this goes back to that whole transparency issue that we were just talking about and David raised earlier. So I uh, commend you on the photo and commend you on your transparency. And I'm glad to uh, own a couple. Yeah, and I would like to say, uh, so that piece of the composite, so that actually, I think that was one of the last shots I ever took with that camera before I sold it for one of them for the landscape portion. And uh, my love for landscapes actually, unfortunately, left shortly after I got rid of that camera. It was a mirrorless, and I went to a DSLR. And even though it was a nicer camera in a lot of different ways, um, to the landscapes were never the same for me. And so I really, that's why I focused mostly on wildlife since, you know, really 2019 sometime. And, uh, but this is when I got to combine, you know, that lens for my new camera. So I used my new camera, uh, my Nikon uh, D850, which I saw that you used for this, uh, this shot here that I purchased. And I love that too. I was like, you know, we share the same camera and I was like, that's, that's awesome. That's perfectly fitting. So besides the wearables that you're going to, that you're going to airdrop, do you have any other plans for people who are part of your community after collecting an open edition piece? Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't have anything, you know, specific in mind, but I can tell you that, uh, you know, for all my piece, there's, I, I have a few ideas uh, as far as, um, 
this was an experiment for me. You know, this was my first manifold mint. And so I wanted to see number one, you know, how many maybe would be minted. And I wanted to see how many people would mint of each. And that was going to maybe kind of determine, you know, what I would do as far as going forward. And so I'm kind of still waiting to see, you know, over the next 24 hours uh, as to where this little experiment of mine is going to go and how I'm going to, you know, maybe take care of those people going forward or, you know, what kind of fun things we'll have going on there. Because I was thinking about doing a token burn, um, but, you know, maybe this wasn't the right piece for that or maybe, you know, the price wasn't quite low enough. And so um, I am considering maybe doing another, uh, you know, maybe a wildlife um, lower cost mint of some kind to where people can buy multiple editions and then will and then maybe, you know, have that for a burn in the future. So it depends on on how this goes. But, um, you know, there's there's definitely uh, I've. I'm always constantly air dropping items and sending things to people that are my holders. So actually, just this past week, um, every single person in I did a kind of a joint promotional um, event with a new project that's coming out, and so it's called um, Board Pizza. And so they're working on some metaverse stuff, and they're a ways out, but. Um, so they do some like partnerships via social media. And so uh, they create a like um, an NFT piece that is like a pizza. And then they kind of mix in your um, some of your marketing or some of your personal, you know, whatever it may be. So me as a photographer, I sent them some photos of my owls and I told them that, you know, hey, I want to include this somehow. And uh, I feel that was a good representation for me. And so. I, they, uh, they have like, I think it's like 16,000 people or something to follow them. And, uh, so they did this promotion over two days and, um, I got like 300 new followers, which is pretty awesome. And then, so all the people that were my existing holders automatically got this like joint thing that we were doing and they, they airdropped them, you know, to my existing wallet people. There's like 273, I think unique wallets I had for all my holders. And so all those people were airdropped, um, some wearables as well. Uh, so just to give you an idea. So that was just like one thing for this one project. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's my current thoughts on it. And you know, the rest I'm waiting to see how it goes. Very cool. Very exciting. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for, for joining us and sharing what's happening and being part of this conversation. And, and thanks for uh, getting Steve into NFTs. We really appreciate that. <laughs> Yes. Well, hey, someone's got to collect. And, um, you know, he's, uh, he's, <laughs> he's very competitive in every aspect, you know, just like I am, I think. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I very, I like when I see something I like, you know, if I'm able to, to get it, then, you know, I, I kind of have to. And so I'm sure Steve is kind of the same way in, in that aspect. And so uh, it's, it's great to see more people like that in the space. And so I'm so glad to see it, Steve. And congratulations. Thank you so much. Well, we're really happy that you could join us. Um, I, so, Steve, I think we're probably getting close to wrapping up, but I, I did want to, you just sort of like dropped the, this this line a little earlier, and I, I didn't want to let it go unnoticed. Did you say you've written over 50 books in your in your world, or was it 500 books? I thought no. <laughs> How no, many books did you write? It's about 50. I mean, you know, some solo some collaborations a few ghosted books um they were mainly books on business and creativity back in the early micro computer days um uh it was about business computing and um uh and they they were you know they, they basically um did okay to not okay but then there was one 
little non-book that I got goaded into writing by a uh, one of my publishers. And it was a book about parenting with little or no television when my publishers was over. And our son was two. And he said, what do you do with your kid? You know, we play with him. He goes, well, where's your television? I said, it's in the closet. He goes, oh, let me see. I showed him his little nine-inch Sony. He goes, what the hell do you do with your kid? I said, well, we make games and stuff like that. And he goes, show me. So my, my wife's a landscape architect and very creative. And we showed games that we did. He goes, you guys have to write a book. This is the most incredible thing. It's going gonna, it's gonna to turn this country around. Yeah, I'll shut up, you know. Anyways, um, uh, a million copies later, I wasn't complaining. And um, that was after being on Oprah and all the morning shows and um, – just um, every, I, I was everywhere, and it was just so freaky and kind of stupid. It was like, uh, or it seemed stupid, is that I'd go on national television to show people how to do things other than watch television with their kids. And um, anyhow, that was my life for a few years, and wrote a bunch of books uh, after that. And that was my author side of things. Wow, multi-talented. That's all I can say. <laughs> multi-talented. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah, I, that is pretty funny that they brought you onto a TV show to teach people how to parent without using, you know, without having a television as a, a crutch. I guess uh, you know, what are we gonna do with the kid? I don't know. Put him in front of the TV. I, at one point, when I was living in Chicago, I, I had a television in the closet as well. I, there's nothing on TV, and then. A couple years later, I, I literally like threw two televisions into this big recycling truck. I think that they brought in, they brought it in, and they were like, "We're going to take all your electronics and we'll recycle them." I'm like, cool. We don't watch the TV, so I just chucked it in there. Uh, that was really a that was a fun moment. Um, I guess now, of course, I watch streaming things, but that's like on my own terms and my own time and my schedule and all that. And, you know, by choice rather than just like, what's it feeding you next? So I, I think that that's a pretty cool idea to parent with little or no television. And congratulations on over a million copies sold. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that was the time. Just, uh, you know, another part of my life. And um, but thank you. Absolutely. Well, and speaking of your wife being a landscape architect, um, you, the first drop that you have on Sloika, of course, has a few pieces left. And I wondered, do you want to give us just a quick, a quick view into uh, Northeastern Natives? Um, yeah. And basically, well, this is slightly embarrassing. I didn't re-up at this time on Sloika as a series. I'm going to go back and pull it apart and do it as additions. Um, I think that... Uh, it's just so much easier to sell right now and making things accessible is important. But the series is about, was about, the individual pieces are still about uh, native plants and their importance. This is a cause that's very important to my wife and our, our backyard is 100% native. And the original drop had 12 um, one of ones, uh, one sold and uh, the others have been around for too long and um uh, as i say i'm going to come back and we'll do them as additions uh but um it's basically a um it's a collection of macro photographs that show the beauty of native plants around here and in fact wherever you live native plants have extreme beauty and you can do more for the environment than you think simply by planting native because insects are plant specific and if there's nothing for the insects they go if they go then there's nothing for the birds and then they go someplace else if the birds go someplace else then everything up the food chain gets out of whack so um i was very proud of that and uh, again Slika did a great job helping me with that 
but it, it's it's time to move on, and I think some of them as additions would probably do just fine. So, Pam, you'll be hearing from me soon on that. Excellent, excellent. I can't wait. Well, I, you know, like we are all so early that I think it's really cool that artists are experimenting, trying one thing, um, seeing if that works, you know, you, you, you have so many good intentions and goals and, you know, you're not, you're not out there just going haywire with like minting so many things or, or like some people back when we OpenSea first was discovered, people were like putting their entire portfolio on OpenSea. And, and that was just like, people just didn't know what to do with, with, you know, this ability. So I think it's really cool that you're going to take this down and, and release it one by one as additions. I think that's a really cool idea. And, you know, for, for anyone who's listening, who is wondering about editions versus one of ones, uh, one way to look at an edition release, it's kind of like if you were to have a fine art print, and maybe there was only going to be, you know, 10 or, or maybe 50 copies of a particular format of that particular size on a particular type of paper, etc. And those are all individually numbered by the artist. And in this world, especially on Sloika, maybe only on Sloika, the those editions all come with that that individual number. So you know that you have edition number one or edition number three, you know, number one of ten of this of this particular edition. And Steve, I don't know if you noticed, but we we just launched this cool little feature on our editions pages where now you can see what collector collected what number. And in the case of if someone has two of them, you'll be able to see that as well. And people can choose which number they want to 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 buy. And we we did that because I heard so many spaces with you and your grandson Sabod where Sabod always wants to buy number 12 because that's his birthday. I don't know what month his birthday is in, but I do know it's on the 12th. <laughs> and so um, it, it seemed to be very important for him to, to always choose number 12. And other people have magic numbers like 8 or, or 11 or, or different different things. And so we wanted to, to make that possible also. But now it, when you look at the edition page, uh, we've got it pinned up at the top. So if you if you go take a look at Steve's edition, you'll be able to see just who picked up which which number and go after them if you wanted to buy it on secondary. I guess now you know who has what. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it's a great feature. And uh, me, I either want number one or the last one. Don't ask me why, but, uh, you know, that's just what appeals to me. Okay, well, there's a lot of artists in this space, so you might be hearing from them about either number one or number 10, or not the last one, rather. <laughs> Good, good to know. See, I'm asking these questions, you guys, so that I'm helping get into this collector mindset. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm also curious on my own because as a photographer, I always like to know what goes into the decision for people to collect the work, and I know what goes into it when I make a decision to collect something. But it's, uh, it, it is fascinating, isn't it? Um, well, Steve, do you have any other topics that we should touch on before we depart and continue with our Mondays? Well, we've been at it for two hours and 15 minutes. People want to either go to sleep and thank you. I know there's some people who are in time zones where it's really late, and I really appreciate that support. That speaks volumes. And for everybody else who's endured two hours and 15 minutes of this, there are some people who've been here through the beginning. And um, yeah, just uh, I want to thank you so much, Pam and, and Ev and everybody else on Sloika there for what you do and uh, encourage people to really think of it as the uh, premier photography platform. Um, And uh, you got me thinking about a lot of things. It was wonderful to be able to talk about them. 
So I guess the, the only last thing I'd like to mention here is that um, every photographer here should be thinking about Vero, okay? I am not a uh, uh, paid Vero spokesperson. Um, I just like what I see. On Thursday at noon, ET, Sabote and I are going to be doing a space on Vero. Uh, Ayman Harari, who is the co-founder and um, CEO, will also be there as an honorary co-host. And we've been rounding up people who are very successful on Vero, uh, and they're going to be there too. And it'll be kind of like a uh, um, AMA of sorts. And um, I would encourage everybody to go and check it out. It's free. It's a great platform. No data mining, no algorithms, no ads. And uh, I've been enjoying the experience. It's a great community. So I would encourage everybody to attend that if you can. If you don't know what Vero is, you'll find out. If you're on it and wondering what to do with it and how to grow a following, you'll get some good ideas. Wow, that's going to be a really great space. I know I've been on Vero since I want to say 2015. It was that when it first came, well, when it first came out, as far as what I know, I jumped on it right away, started an account, and I didn't do much after that. So I'm going to look forward to hearing what I should be doing with it. And uh, I was going to just give Andrew Meese a quick tip, too, because if you wanted to hear what happened or what we said about you before you got here, you can always listen to the Slick at Darkroom podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Where, um, you know, if that's Spotify or Apple or Anchor or any of the places where you listen to podcasts, if you just search for Slick at Darkroom, you'll be able to hear this conversation as well as past conversations. We've had nerd talks with Ev. We've had artist, artist talks with people like Dasha Pears and Sarah Lindsay. We've talked with collectors like Chip and Sunny and Zach and Sashank and Alpha, Nick Kalyani. Oh my gosh, I could go back and back. And Emma from Meta Jungle. And if you come back here on Wednesday, we'll be here at 12 noon Eastern. We're going to have a virtual gala celebrating the ex exhibition that Soika is presenting in partnership with Messinati Fine Art in Rome, Italy. We've been um, putting together this exhibition with the help of five guest curators who are also collectors to present seven different themes about photography, celebrating provenance in focus, photography in Web3. And so anyone who's involved in that exhibition, anyone who just wants to hang out and support the people who are in the exhibition, will be doing that here in the Sloika Darkroom on Wednesday. And that will be, again, at 12 noon Eastern. And then next Monday, at the same time you started listening to this episode, we're going to be talking with Jordan Banks, who is an OG photographer on Sloika. He was one of the first people I did a space with when I first started my job here. And I had a great time talking to him about his travel photography in India. Well, he is also now editor of Journey Magazine, and he's going to be talking to us about that. And uh, so, yeah, a couple things to look forward to in uh, in the, I'll just leave it at that because we have more coming up, but I don't want to overwhelm everybody. And you can always find us here in the darkroom on Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern and on Wednesdays at 12 p.m. Eastern. So, um, Steve, I'm really happy that you could join us today. And congratulations on being not only the the third highest in volume collector on on Sloika, but for uh, for doing really good, even though you're uh, you're uh, nature's layer cake. <laughs> it's like wait, I came up with the title. I should remember it. Nature's layer cake just been released today. You've already are almost halfway sold out. So I would highly recommend people take a look at that quickly and get a piece of that. 
Um, thanks for everyone who joined us. And yeah, I will just say thanks again, Steve. It's been great to have you. And I look forward to seeing you in more spaces. And the pleasure is mine. We'll look forward to seeing you as well. Thank you so much. Absolutely. With that, we'll say bye for now. Thanks everyone for listening and joining us. And uh, we'll see you back here on Wednesday. Bye for now.